Welcome to the Indian Science Show. I'm Turtle. And I'm Annie. And on today's episode, we interview Dr. Robin Kimmerer. She's a mother, a plant ecologist, a writer. She's a SUNY Distinguished Teaching Professor at the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry, which is where, where we go. Yeah, that's where we're going. And she's she's also our major professor, which has been an honor and a very enlightening experience because I think it's really important to meet your mentors, but more mm-hmm. specifically, it's I think it's important to, to learn from some of the best people that have been working in areas that you're interested in for mm-hmm. a long time, which is what she's been doing. Yeah, so she focuses a lot on how traditional ecological knowledge is used in ecological restoration efforts. She has worked with countless tribal communities and really has helped us find our direction in our research. Yeah, I know that. She has a she has a knack for boiling down some of my big <laughs> my big <laughs> what about those telescope in the sky ideas yeah. down into something that actually is workable and simple and makes sense. And I'm sure that's probably come from her years and years of teaching experience. Mm-hmm. And there's probably a reason they gave her that title, Distinguished Teaching right. Professor. <laughs> so I know that I've learned a lot from her. I I've learned you, yeah, a lot from her, you've too. You've learned a lot from her. Oh, yeah. So maybe now you guys can learn something from her, too. Yes. Yes, it was, it was a pleasure to have her on the show, and mm-hmm. we hope you guys enjoy it. Welcome to the show, everybody. We have a very special guest with us today, and I've wanted her on, and Annie's wanted her to come on the show for a long time. So we're both very excited to have Robin Kimmer on the show. Thanks for joining us today, Robin. Thanks for asking me. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. It's it's hard to explain how this makes me feel, because after I read your book, Gathering Mosses, I never would have imagined that I'd meet you, and then I started real meeting other mentors of mine and realized, wow, that's a really awesome thing to go try to meet people that mm-hmm. you respect. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to meet Robin someday, but I had no idea I'd end up studying with you. So <laughs> I'm glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so be, I, before we get going though, into some of our questions, we'd like to give you an opportunity to tell a little bit about your story and where you come from. So can you share maybe a story from your childhood or, uh, Maybe your, one of your favorite memories growing up here in New York? Sure. Uh, favorite memory. Um, I was lucky enough to grow up in the woods and fields. I was kind of a free-range kid. And so a lot of my very favorite memories are of simply being outside with plants. Yes, I was that plant geek <laughs> from the time I was a little kid. And um, so a favorite memory, you know, to... There were these beautiful old fields that, that grew, um, um, strawberries and goldenrod and asters and willows and little baby orchids in the grass. It was, it was magical growing up. Um, and so, you know, one of the, the memories that comes to me in particular is the first time that I wanted to make a basket. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have anybody to teach me that because I grew mm. up away from our people. Um, and so I said, well, I'm going to figure this out. And I went and I cut willows by the stream and I soaked them. And um, I just remember the magic of having that confidence that the plants would show me what to do. Um, and, and just the, the sheer um, 
joy of of trying to figure it out. I have to tell you, I mean, my first basket looked pretty terrible. <laughs> <laughs> looked like an eight-year-old made it. Right. How about that? Um, but I so profoundly remember that sense of saying, well, the plants will show me how to do this. And, uh, and the plants have been good teachers to me ever since that moment. Hmm. Wow. That's awesome. So you didn't have any, the plants showed you. So in, I, I have a bit of a different experience where I, I learned a lot from a book and then eventually I went and trusted myself enough. So, but you, you, you just went out and tried it and eventually figured it out. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And for me, um, you know, I, I didn't just try willow. I remember trying old goldenrod stems and milkweed stems, and well, there was a disaster. You know, that doesn't work at all. Mm. Um, so it really was the plants showing me, no, I will bend. Um, I will bend if wet. I will do okay. this. I will do that. Um, so it was, it was experimentation. It was that natural process of, of being a scientist that I think every child outdoors embodies. Um, hmm. And uh, it, it was so much fun and definitely set me on my path. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't think I had that same connection when I was younger. I think that my connection was with water. I think that cause we have a large lake. And so a lot of our summers in Montana were spent at the lake. And so I don't, Hmm. I kind of wish that I, so, I I had that. <laughs> kind of like that, yeah. that, that, um, that connection that goes beyond your memory, like mm -hmm. a first time. Yeah. Well, and today so, at the at the farm that they said when I was when when you were tanning that it's blood memory that, that you remember what it is when you're doing it, when you start doing it and and today I really remembered that and and it's like just like beating like picking it up and it is in your blood like you remember how to do it. And I think that we don't trust ourselves a lot of the times and we just have to kind of do what you know that you're supposed to do. I agree. I love the way that you said that. You know, it reminds me of those times when, of course, we question ourselves like, oh, mm -hmm. I don't know how to do that. I couldn't participate in that because I don't know how. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time that I was in a... Um, uh, a song circle and, and I, well, I really shouldn't be here because I don't know these songs. And then everybody started singing and I started singing too. And I thought, I do know these songs. Mm. How did I know these songs? Because they're in me and mm -hmm. they're, they're flowing up through us. And, and those kind of experiences mean, you know, teach us just to trust what's coming through mm -hmm. and not to talk to talk ourselves out of doing things um, because we think we don't know. Maybe you do know, and if you don't, it's a chance to learn. <laughs> right, yeah. 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 yeah, I think that we now live in a world where everybody assumes that you're supposed to know because everything is at your fingertip. Like, you have technology that you can Google it and you can look at all this stuff. And so I think people assume that you're supposed to know. And so when you don't know, it's kind of the scary process of finding enough courage to do it yourself and, and really kind of taking that leap forward. Yeah, I think you're right. And that also is reflected in that we have this culture of experts, right? Mm -hmm. You know, instead of back to singing, instead of singing ourselves, we pay money to listen to somebody else sing, mm -hmm. um, as opposed mm -hmm. to just saying, well, this is, this is our legacy. Everybody mm -hmm. should sing or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my dad got me a CD of 
my aunt's people, Coeur people, and it's this all-female drum group that constantly plays in my car. And uh, and Elijah, our turtle, appreciates it a lot. And and so it's weird how certain people get in my car and when they hear that, they're like, "What? What is this? I don't, I don't understand." But I think that we should we should sing our own songs, and I think that there's a lot of power in that. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that. And that's one of my. That's got to be one of my favorite things to do is introduce somebody to powwow music who's never ever heard it before. And uh, there, there's yet to be a time where they weren't just totally blown away or just totally weirded out or didn't really understand, almost didn't understand it sometimes. And for me, I very, I don't remember a time where that I don't remember the first time I heard it. So I'm a little bit jealous when I when I do it, but I do it because the, I see the effect that it has on people is pretty pretty big. So that kind of cross cultural exchange can have a really big effect on people. And I think that once indigenous knowledge and the values kind becomes more understandable, people tend to really, it tends to resonate with people, especially people that feel like they've been either excluded or somehow deceived by the greater knowledge system, or somehow they, they haven't figured out how to navigate in it and then find out all this, these different ways of knowing that it can be very encouraging to people. Have you experienced that with students here? I have experienced it in so many different ways of that. I start to think of this as when we share, may, maybe it's music, a story, um, uh, Native worldview, native science, um, with our non-native, um, uh, collaborators, our friends, our, our community, what it feels like is there is this collective remembering, you know, like listening to drum songs. People think, oh, that, I've never heard that before. And then when they do, it's like, Oh yeah, this is awakening something. Well, for us, the, in Potawatomi, the word for drum is dawegan, and, and it means the, the heart. Mm. And, and, and it's a, it, we all have that heart that responds to that. And I feel like, um, oftentimes people are deeply, deeply touched by that resonance that you're talking about is a kind of remembering, like, oh, this is what it's like to be a human. Mm. <laughs> um, and so there's something deeply familiar, but at the same time, strange, because it's been so alienated from our culture, from mainstream culture. Yeah. It seems like it's, it's becoming more mainstream now to at least be aware of what's going on in Indian country. But I think that there's still quite a ways to go before most people are actually aware of what's really going on instead of the kind of the popular stuff like eagle feathers and headdresses and other things mm-hmm. for sure mm. tribal print <laughs> yeah yeah where you mix appropriation with appreciation um we we have a lot of that where you see uh, tribal designs will be in style and then once it fades out then it's kind of like this disappearance and they'll, they'll come back in and it's like a fad once in a while yeah but uh, I think it's it's true in a lot of ways of connecting to land as well. I think that that's kind of increasing with with people who are understanding that we don't live in an infinite resource management place. That we do need to start respecting at least where we live. And I think that that 
is changing. And I think that it can change a lot more with maybe indigenous views more, especially the honorable harvest, really kind of understanding how, how you respect plants and, and your responsibility to plants. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one question I have for you is when you were growing up, did, and since you were away from your people, did you kind of have that culture and plant mixed together or was it kind of just botany? Or was it kind of just understanding the plants or, or have you always kind of had this idea of the culture behind plants? When I think about the elements that underlie the honorable harvest, for example, um, yeah, those were, I don't think I had vocabulary for them, Annie, but they were things that were present in my family mm-hmm. and we just, we just knew it. It was just a code of behavior. Nobody said that this is a traditional practice. Nobody said that this is the honorable harvest. Um, it's just the way you do things. Um, and, you know, to not take more than you need and not waste things and, mm-hmm. and to be respectful and always give something back. Uh, yeah, we, I don't, I don't know that, um, it was, it was a way of being, a way of thinking, but I, but I don't know that in my own family, we necessarily recognize that as, um, Parwarmi traditional teachings. Mm-hmm. It, it was, um, later that I had a vocabulary for that. I thought it was just what my family did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is what my big family does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It seems like there's a big, so I I, t- I try like to lump things together a lot, and it seems like there's a when that's really common for people to have the values, the cultural values that are that are that come with some of these responsibilities and these different ways of gaining gaining knowledge and how all these differences in different indigenous communities. But it seems like when those values are disconnected from the practice of those values, then they can kind of then they can almost take on a different form in a different place, but the values are still the same. Does that make sense or am I kind of explaining myself a little? I think I see where you're going, that the values endure, even though there may be lots of different ways to manifest them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Because it seems like we I share a lot of values with people from like an Anglo-Saxon Christian background, and I share a lot of the same values, and some of their teachings from their creation stories also. And it seems like how they interpret those and act them out in the world. That seems to really be the difference. Not that it's there, that the, the tradition that it's coming from. Yes. So, or it could be just that I'm, I meet certain people that from a certain crowd, but I, I think that's really interesting how people from the very same culture can have such different value systems and that, how that plays out in the world and what they decide to do. Yeah, for sure. And I think the this common thread that you're identifying of people from different cultures but still have these same kinds of principles for right relation with, mm-hmm. with land, um, you know, the way I think about that is is it goes back to our teachings about the land as our teacher. That's yeah. why it's called original instructions right so if if anglo-saxon traditions and and um buddhist traditions and and native indigenous 
in to Turtle Island have the same notions of respect for land and and giving mm-hmm. back all those 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 ways of being in right relationship. I think they we converge on those because that's what the land taught us, um, and the land will teach you that whether you're on a Polynesian island or mm-hmm. in the Arctic, the land will teach you that you have to give back that you can't take too much um and and that i think is the the kind of wisdom that people are trying to reclaim of what does the land say um and and there's there's lots of different voices of of that land but some of these fundamental truths of of if you're going to go forward and flourish these have to be the rules think the great fallacy is in in western society we've started to not started to for 500 years um have been believing that these laws of nature don't apply to us Mm -hmm. um like like they repealed thermodynamics on behalf of homo sapiens (laughs) no i don't think so (laughs) Hmm. i think that was i that's really interesting that you mentioned that i feel like the land in certain places have been even more important as far as teachers and mentors than like human people have been sometimes in my life being able to think about just view try to view things from their perspective like a a plant of some kind like a tree or a place or a mountain and uh mentors I think that's probably something that is really, really important in life. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it seems like a lot of that is missing from our community anyway, back home, mentorship. Yeah. And I know in my life that that's really when I've been able to get to that next level is when I actually put my ego aside and go and find a mentor and work with somebody that can help guide me. Is there anybody in your life or maybe any particular place in your life that you can think of as being a really impactful mentor? So many. I feel really blessed to have had many mentors. And you know what? Probably a lot of those mentors don't even know the role hmm. that they were my mentor. <laughs> yeah. But I was listening and I was watching and thinking, that is a good way to be. Mm-hmm. Sometimes mentors that you'd look and say, no, I, I don't want to be that way too. <laughs> yeah, those it, are important ones too. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Um, and... I, I love how you asked that question, Turtle, because it, it opens that door to multiple sorts of mentors. So let me say again that I think that some of my most important mentors are and continue to be plants. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, there are certain plants that I just go to all the time and say, grandmother sugar maple help me out here. What do you think about this? And um, it, it's a source of a lot of comfort and guidance um, mm-hmm. for me in the realm of of human mentors um again you know i would want to name in particular um my late brother-in-law um stuart king was an amazing mentor for me um so kind and so patient and there are i think that he was the kind of mentor that could really see your heart um, and he would give me the sort of knowledge and guidance that I didn't even know how to ask for, but that he saw. And he's like, you need to know this. You need, I want you to have a pathway into this knowledge. <laughs> and, uh, so he was of, of tremendous value to me. And I, and I miss his guidance. Um, but I know it's still 
with me. I also had good academic mentors, you know, thinking about within the university community that we're still in, um, of, of folks who took me under their wing when they saw I was struggling or on the outside, that people who invited me into the circle. And uh, mm-hmm. for me, those are important kinds of mentors, uh, because when you're when you're the only one, as we know, how many <laughs> of us, you know, we are in the oh, I'm the only native here. I'm the mm-hmm. only sometimes I'm the only woman here. I'm, and so for somebody to invite you into the circle is um, is for me important because mm-hmm. I don't really have that that gift of. Um, Making your way in there, Thank weaseling you. in there. Right. Is that what it's called? Right. You know, is it depends yeah. on how you do it, I guess. Huh? Yeah, it could, a, it could be a weasel, right. or what would what would be an animal that shows up and everybody's like gets cheerful and is like, "Hey, it's good to see you." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I was going to say elbow my way. Oh in, yeah, elbow. No. Oh yeah. No, that, you know that's why we don't do it because mm-hmm. like that, that feels really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So. Um, for me, oftentimes my mentors have been <laughs> folks who simply understood that yeah. and invited me. And it would depend on the circle too. Some circles, I would say, require a certain amount of that, that elbowing in and weaseling in, if you will. And other circles are way more open and willing to greet strangers. And others are very guarded against outsiders and people that are different. And it's, a, it's probably one of the hardest things I ever realized is uh, that to be able to go where you want and do what you want to do, you, oftentimes you just got to learn how to speak to the the audience that you're working with or the group that you're trying to befriend or what have you. So that have you noticed that in your life that you had to kind of shift how you did things depending on whether you're in academia or you're back home in your community? I mean, of course, like we all act different around our parents. I know that's for sure. Right. Yeah. 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 What do they call it now? Code switching? Yeah. Um, But absolutely. Um, And, you know, that for me, I think is part of my job as a teacher Um, because being a, a teacher means that for me, you really have to look at and understand who you're teaching mm-hmm. and, and what are their interests? What are their capacities? What are the ways to bring people along the path? And it's different for everybody depending on what that audience is. Yeah. And, and so for me, that notion of, um, whether it's in your classroom or, you know, on the page as a writer, to meet your audience where they are, mm-hmm. um, to say, all right, I think I know a place that you and I could have a really good, easy, comfortable conversation. And once we have that relationship, um, then you could sort of take their hand and lead them down a path that they might not ever have gone mm. by themselves. And uh, so absolutely learning to speak a a different language. Sometimes it has to be the science language, a technical language, because if you speak in poetry to those physicists, they're going to look at you <laughs> like, what? And think this has nothing to do with me. Um, and, and, and likewise, if you speak physiology to a, a group of, of, of people really interested in, in, in music, you might not get anywhere, right? So to me, that's part of the role of a teacher is to read 
where can we meet up <laughs> in order for us to go somewhere else? Hmm. That reminds me of that old Chinese saying about the, the teacher's only there to open the door for you. And I think what you just described is like, well, the teacher's opening the door, but how they're opening it is really, really, really important. And I know that I learned a lot just watching how open you are to listening to students and their feedback on the quizzes. And then I, I remember at one point I asked you why why you did that and it made a lot of sense the answer you gave me was basically what you just said where uh, in order to become a better teacher you really have to understand how you're delivering your message or your lesson whatever it is and that was the quizzes that trying to just make your quizzes better so it wasn't the quiz that was causing the students to fail if they were failing it was just because they didn't study versus the just maybe how you worded something or something sure right yeah and I don't see a lot of professors do that. So I know I always have a little, it gives me just a little more encouragement when I see professors do that. Because it shows, I think, a lot about how they view being a teacher. Yeah. And we don't always view being a teacher kind of the same like how we all learn different. Everybody wants to teach things differently. I've definitely noticed that over the years. I especially like the kind of teaching where I realize that what's important is for me to get out of the way, mm. that the teaching is going to happen because of experience, um, mm. that I could set up an experience for students and, and then I don't need to be there anymore, um, that they need to discover something. They need to mm. figure out how to solve a problem as a team or learn to observe more closely. And that isn't anything where that I have to be involved in. Again, maybe it's that invitation again. Mm-hmm. I have to invite them into a setting where I think they could learn something. Um, and as we all know, we learn so much better when we discover it ourselves than if somebody's telling us. Um, you know. Yeah. I love that you say that because one thing that I tell people about this program that we're in is that your, your guidance is when we ask for it, it seems like when like we're ready and like we're at the point where it's like, Hey, I need some help. Can you kind of help me through it? Like it's not you guiding us, but it's you helping us while we guide ourselves through our research. And I think that when in the beginning I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And like, I could never imagine myself being where I am, but it's because you helped me guide myself to where I am now. And I didn't, it just clicked to me when you said that. And, and it's, it's exactly how I feel about you being my advisor is that it wasn't you saying that you should do this. It was you saying that I have the ability to decide what I know that I want to do. And then you helped me figure out what I wanted to do. And it was a lot of crying and getting me here. (laughs) But, but yeah, no, I, I see it now. Yeah, I think that's a really important, really uh, an important point that you're you're both touching on is that nobody really learns or changes or really does much of anything until they decide to. There's always this point where we're like, okay, well, even if when even as children, they do things because at one point they decide, okay, well, this person obviously has my best interest because they're so much bigger and wiser than me, so they follow along, and kids just trust adults, Mm -hmm. and it's amazing. And it's a little sad to see that slowly go away as they become teenagers and start to learn that not everybody knows what they're doing or n- not everybody knows what they're talking about. 
And, um, but what I noticed also is the opposite that that big paradigm shift or the huge shift in someone's thinking comes when they want to, when they decide that, that it's time. Right. So in your own life, have you, what was, I, I would say probably the biggest or maybe the first major shift in your thinking that had the biggest impact in your life? I don't know if, if this is the first turtle, but, um, I know that for the work that I do now, one of the biggest turning points for me was after I'd gotten my PhD in botany and, um, I had my first teaching job and I began to teach botany and plant ecology in very much the way I had been taught. Mm-hmm. Well, not surprising. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. We replicate that. We're, we're trained to do that. And um, I think I was doing it well, but I was teaching almost, not quite, but almost with, fully within the Western science paradigm mm-hmm. um, because that was the kind of institution where I was. That was what was expected of me. Um, and then, um, you know, how the... Universe just works sometimes and says, okay, there's another path here. Um, someone called me up and said, you should go to this gathering of traditional plant knowledge holders. And, uh, you need to get yourself there and you need to sit in that room and just listen to what people have to say. And this was, this was an invitation again mm-hmm. from somebody who I didn't really even know very well. And I wasn't sure how they knew me. Mm. Um, but they said, you need to get there. And so I just said, okay, okay. Come knocking on my door. Yes, I'm going to do this. And I sat in the back of that room. We weren't allowed to take notes or anything else. It was really this deeply traditional learning of you just be there and soak up. Um, and it was four days not surprisingly, of, <laughs> of plant knowledge sharing. And by the time I left there, I realized that the path that I was on teaching and thinking in this colonized way that had been my higher education, um, was, it was such a shallow way to know. It reminded me of what I knew when I was a kid about the real vibrant animacy of plants. Um, and it was also incredibly humbling as this new PhD, like, oh man, I know botany. <laughs> I walked in everything like, I don't know anything. I <laughs> don't know anything. But this is so rich and it, it, it just, it reminded me, it was remembering again. It was like, right. This is the way I, the plants used to speak to me. Um, and, and I need that in my understanding of plants again. So, um, again, it was mysterious how I got there. Um, but it, it really set my feet on this path of, of reclaiming, uh, traditional plant knowledge and trying to bring it into relationship with, with, uh, scientific plant knowledge. Hmm. And here we are now. And here we are now. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that amazing when things just... Life is weird. (laughs) It comes to give, you know, to give you faith in knowing that stepping stones are 
put in our lives sometimes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we recognize them, sometimes we don't. Um, but when a stepping stone appears, I now have complete faith in step on it. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and sometimes it's kind of like on the that the the bog of stench or whatever the on that one movie where every time you step on it it farts sometimes <laughs> it's one of those it's a never ending story oh yeah, yeah. Is, that, uh, yeah? is that what no it was? it's the labyrinth it was the labyrinth oh, with uh, yeah. that singer dude um <laughs> david bowie david, yeah david bowie <laughs> and he's like some wizard kind of he sorcerer guy baby. and oh, uh, he vanished this have you ever seen that show no oh, oh it's, it's a good. great show yeah and um that just reminded me, like, some of those stones are really fun and really full of excitement and, like, really positive energy, quote-unquote positive. But some of them are like the stones in the bog of stench or whatever that place is called and where they, they'll fart and they stink and it's not something you want to do at all, <laughs> but you got to do it. And it's really important. But it's hard to tell when you're step, stepping on them, when, it's, when you're, like, experiencing all the pain and the struggle of stepping on that stinky stone. Sometimes... It's almost impossible to tell if it's good or bad at the yeah. moment. So it seems like kind of just accepting what's given to you and doing the best with what's given to you. Seems like to be the sure strategy to just keep kind of keeping going. And then, because I don't know how many times in my life, like I think one of the best examples is a hard breakup where it's really painful, but in retrospect, you almost always think man i can't believe or i'm I'm so glad that i got out of that situation or i'm so glad i got through that but you wouldn't know anything about how bad that was without experiencing it so i, I really agree with you when you say that experiencing and learning that way is probably one of the best ways across the board no matter what kind of learner you are actually experiencing something is always going to be good yeah and <coughs> excuse me and, you know, I'm internally giggling here about this, this um, bog of stench and that you step <laughs> on one of those stones and you can almost immediately sometimes in our lives know like, mm, mm -hmm. no, yeah, no, um, this was set in my path and I need to get off from this one and step somewhere else pretty quickly. I, I think that that too, that, that process of discernment of knowing mm. what is the path is well it's lifelong learning right um sometimes there's stepping stones that fart and and you <laughs> and you and you have yeah. to you have to be looking real quickly for something that is yeah, you got to have a quick nose for that kind of thing <laughs> mm, that's a whole and that's a really hard skill to learn too i feel like i'm getting better at that every day almost or trying to at least just pay attention to your mistakes and watch your watch your step yeah. Hmm. Well, thanks for sharing that story. I, I'm not totally sure how I got reminded about the bog of stench. Oh, the stepping, just stepping stones. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. And that's a really great analogy. I've noticed that you're really good with analogies and metaphors <laughs> and yeah. telling stories through those things about things that I've struggled trying to put into words since I was a kid. I think that's part of what really drew me to your, to you is your writing and uh, I hadn't read Braiding Sweetgrass before I got into the program, but I'd read Gathering Moss. And for me, that was a huge paradigm shift in my life and changed the way I thought about plants and especially mosses. And I'd never even considered, I'd, I'd, I'd used them and I knew they were important, but I didn't know 
the details of that that world and how unique it is compared to the rest of the plant world. And so I, I know that mentors don't always have to come physically, that they can come through a quote or a video that you saw on YouTube or a book that you read. Is there is there any kind of um message that you would offer people about how to reach out to mentors? If they maybe read their book or if they see them on TV or something, is, is there something that you've done in your past that may help some of our listeners reach out to mentors in their life? That's a really good, really good question. Um, I think that the reaching out can probably be most effective for both if you're offering to work alongside. Hmm. I think about some of the most um, rewarding mentor relationships that I've ever had on both ways, both with with me being a mentor to others and me being a, a, a student to a, a mentee to with someone else, is to say, how could how could we help each other? Um, that that to recognize that it, well. I guess it's reciprocity, isn't it? Um, to say, you know, what you have to teach or, or the experiences that you're leading and offering are, are something really valuable that I would like to be a part of. And so my inclination, I guess, is to, is to say, well, how could I help with that? How could I be involved with that? To, to always have that, that notion that I could give something in return for that mentorship. Um, to me, that's sometimes the, the way that I feel comfortable with that asking. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking about one of my um, great mentors and teachers as an undergraduate actually was one of the first people to be doing restoration ecology. Mm, and wow. um, I so admired his work. He was, his name was Ed Ketchlitz. He lived in this building, this very building where I was an <laughs> undergraduate all those years ago. And he was a really well-known scientist and, and, and revered. Um, and he wanted to take everything that he knew about plant ecology to save the alpine summits in the Adirondacks, which the Adirondacks are just the home of my heart. Mm -hmm. And, and he was taking his science to try to heal those summits. And, and it, he needed people to tote bags of fertilizer and seed up a 4,000 foot peak. And, uh, I was glad to do it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I was glad like to do it. It yeah. was, it was fun. It was really hard work, but you know, at the same time, you're, you're literally following in his footsteps yeah. <laughs> up the, up these mountains. Um, but I, I know that in metaphoric ways, I am still following in his footsteps because to me, the, the work of, of being a scientist is to use it for healing. And he was probably one of the first people to, to show me that, that, that that's really why we're doing science is to be able to try to take care of the world. Mm. And, uh, and he could hike so darn fast. I mean, he was, <laughs> I don't know, he was probably in his late sixties when I was following up him up those mountains and he could hike the legs off of we 20 year olds. <laughs> huh. Yeah. I had that old man strength, huh? Yeah. 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 My dad has that. 
He's 73, and I'm like, I don't know how you're out here shoveling and plowing the snow right now. <laughs> it's like you, it's a, it's a strength that that old, old men have. Yeah. 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 Well, I hope one day I'll have old man strength. <laughs> Good. I want old woman strength. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So the, 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 I get reminded of this a lot that, it doesn't seem, and my mom talked about this since I was a little kid, that it's not science that's a problem. It's the, the value system that's guiding it and how it gets used. And so this guy is a perfect example of that where he, it was a value of his that science is not just this method. It's not just this thing that produces knowledge. It's meant to heal the world. And I love that. I've never actually even thought about restoration science as in that really? way of healing, even though it, we talk about it a lot. I just never kind of connected the simplicity that yeah, it's, mm-hmm. we're, we're healing the landscape. And I really like that phrase, healing the landscape. Yeah. And, you know, it gets back to our where we were starting off with plants as teachers, because to me the great teachers of, of restoration are the plants. Um, that's the link between plant ecology and restoration, right? Yeah. So, what are you plants doing? What are you mosses doing? What are you mm-hmm. grasses doing? And how could we learn from you and, and take what you have taught us and, and speed things up um, for, for that healing? Yeah. Mm. yeah, to me, restoration ecology is, is one of the most, it's, it's a place of great humility, um, because you're really learning from the plants and saying, what are my gifts as a human that I could use to follow your lead? And so carrying fertilizer and, and up a mountain was something that I could do, mm. <laughs> um, that the plants clearly demonstrated was what needed to happen. Yeah. And the, the, the awesome beauty of plant teachings is that plants don't make mistakes. And this is, that's something I've learned from various different healers and medicine people over the years. That that's one of the major reasons why they're so important is they don't make mistakes like animals do. And there's a reason that they grow where they grow. The reason why they won't grow in certain places. And so in that way, just blunt, listening to their blunt feedback. Has yeah. a lot of wisdom in it. Yeah. You know, especially because, you know, we as animals who are always running around all the time, and, and we, we tend to think that the ability to move, oh, that must be highly evolved, sophisticated. Um, oh, well, plants can't move. They, you know, they must not have much going on. Wait just a minute. What if you were a being that was going to land in one place and live there for 300 years? Hmm. Um, you might, you've got to be really good at relationship. <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. might, you know, yeah. um, that is some sophisticated knowledge to say, how am I going to survive when I can't leave? I've got to be here. I've got to negotiate everything. I have to be super creative and plastic and adaptable in order to live in that way. And I think that's part of how plants, as you say, don't make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's super interesting because Angie at the farm was talking about how uh, she would have albino, uh, I think there are beans that would sprout. Oh, this is cool. And then how... Everyone, she didn't know how to fix it and she didn't know why it was doing that. But when she looked online, everyone's like, well, just pick it because it's going to be dead anyways because it not have any chlorophyll. So they have no nutrients. But what she found was she believed in what you did, that plants don't make mistakes and that we can learn from them. 
And so what she saw was that other plants with the root systems would connect to this plant. So it would send out like a little signal saying that needs help. And the plants would give it its nutrients and it would grow and it would get greener and greener and greener as it grew. And so she proved everybody wrong, you know? And I think that that, you can't really understand that unless you listen to the plants. Yeah. Hmm. That reminds every time you tell that story, it makes me think of that movie, um, Avatar mm-hmm. and Pandora and how all the plant roots were all connected and they could stick their braids into it and mm-hmm. like learn directly from the plants like that. It's such a romanticized view of in, in indigenous cultures, especially in North American ones. And so, I mean, there's that cheesy aspect to it, but there's a lot of really awesome messages in that movie, in that story. And it's got to be, that. that's definitely got to be one of my favorite movies. Yeah, that that balance between um, romanticizing a connection to the living world and um, and taking it seriously mm-hmm. is is a tough place because people will often think, well, that's, that sort of stereotype of, of, you know, the wise indigenous person who can listen to plants like, oh, come on. Um, and, and when that is invoked as a stereotype, I'm like, no, no, there's, <laughs> there's, there's so much more dimensionality here. But at the same time, the ability to, to recognize, um, that we can have these abilities to form relationships with more than humans um, mm-hmm. is 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 not a supernatural romantic idea. It is something that uh, that that is is possible in the physical spiritual fused realm. It's not supernatural to me. It's it's like a muscle that has atrophied because culturally we say it's not possible. Oh, those plants, you couldn't talk to them. You couldn't understand the language of birds. Um, well, yeah, you can. Hmm. <coughs> and science, Western science, is now showing us that that's possible, but that was part of, of our traditional knowledge in the past was to be able to listen to those teachers and um we were taught to listen to advertisements and the radio and each other (laughs) instead and you know not that we shouldn't be listening to each other and, and to all kinds of stories but i i i fear that we we lost our capacity as well as some of our willingness to listen to the living world. Mm-hmm. But I'm really excited to think that it's coming back. <laughs> it's coming back. And so I think that what you just talked about is like that balance. And then what you talked about your love for restoration. Um, did that kind of lead you into this program that you created for, for, for Sowing Synergy and, and really this idea of biocultural restoration? Yes, Exactly. Exactly. Um, for me, I've always been attracted to ecological restoration for the reasons that we've already talked about. But so much of the work of ecological restoration, as powerful and, and, and strong and healing as that can be, it felt really incomplete to me because what we were doing was to heal structure and function. We were putting the pieces back in place. But what led to those to the destruction that needed that restoration. Mm. It was a failure to respect 
and honor and engage in reciprocity with land. Mm-hmm. What caused those, those, what I think of as the Windigo footprints across the landscape were, were, um, a failure of our values in relationship to land. So to say that we could just heal land by putting structure and function back together without also addressing, um, the, the rupture in our relationship to land, um, uh, became really important to me in that, uh, how do, how do we heal our relationship to land at the same time that we're he- healing the land? So it's a more holistic vision of, of, of the, of ecological restoration into this realm of biocultural restoration. And what I actually like to call reciprocal restoration mm-hmm. with that knowledge that as we're healing the land, we're also healing ourselves. Hmm. Yeah, I, it seems like it's needed and called for. I've been coming across different clues and signs in the literature that this new kind of re- way of doing research is it's a uh, it's needed by researchers, but it's also needed by the people that researchers work with. And how do just with that stuff in mind and the the kind of your own reasons why you started the program. What kind of effect do you see this kind of science, this new discipline of biocultural restoration? What kind of effect do you see it having in in the sciences and different disciplines that it reaches out to, but also in the communities that it gets uh, applied in? Well, I hope that, to start with the first part of your question, what I hope it it offers in the whole science of, of restoration is a holistic perspective, to say that that um, that we need to consider human values as well as p-values, is what mm. I like to think about. <laughs> I like um, that. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> I like both. <laughs> me too. Yeah. <laughs> me too. Um, but how, how do we... How do we embody that? How do we make that happen on the land? So I think it can, it can really broaden, uh, what ecological restoration does. It makes, it makes an so-called ecological restoration much more powerful, it gives it enduring qualities. Um, and at the same time, it, it has, it offers the opportunity for humans to remember we're back to that again, um, of our, that we can be a positive influence mm. on the land. Mm. And, and we have been sold this worldview that humans and nature are a bad mix. And restoration, particularly reciprocal restoration, tells a completely different story of that based on indigenous knowledge, based on so much of our environmental philosophy of human beings as, as bringing gifts just as all beings bring mm-hmm. gifts into that circle that we that we have to participate that that all flourishing is mutual um and so that's a way that i think it can change science by having science be more holistic more successful in its application um and the way that communities are changed by that when you do biocultural restoration one of my favorite examples of this is that it isn't enough let's say just to put those 
let's say, to put fire back on the land, right? What happens when you put fire back on the land and those blueberries, those minan, or those, in your country, the huckleberries, right, Mm -hmm. are going to thrive when the fire is back on the land? If the blueberries are there, that means the family's going to go out to pick those berries so that intergenerational sharing is going to happen while you're picking blueberries. The honorable harvest is going to be transmitted and talked about while you're picking those berries and bringing them home to share with somebody else. So I, I think that it, it, the impact that it has on communities is to remind us that we need our language, we need our traditional practices, all of these are part of the healing. And when you initiate the healing of the land and the plants and the water, then that means that, that the door is, is open, maybe back to that invitation to people to come back, come back, come back and be part of things again. Mm-hmm. Remember your role in creation. Hmm. Yeah. Our, our roles and responsibilities. Right. Right. That we're not just takers, mm-hmm. right? Um, and to me, that's the other thing I love about restoration. It really says to us, we're not takers. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I try not to be <laughs> as much as I can. Use less straws, things like that. <laughs> <laughs> I should say, we are not just takers because let's also remember with all humility that we're heterotrophic beings we are consumers mm. we cannot photosynthesize yeah um so we have to take there that's that's i should retract that statement we are not takers we are not just takers yeah uh, we want to remember right. that we're supposed to be a part of that balance right that's mm-hmm. what right that i really like the way neil talks about that just fit, fitting within the seasons within the cycles doing our best to fit in that. And that's our major responsibility yeah. <laughs> because Bikani people view it very similarly that we can't control nature, but it's our responsibility to take care of these cycles by fitting in them the best the way we can. And that involves being adaptable. And I know that it's really tough to try to <laughs> try to be an indigenous person and practice traditional ways. And especially when there's not much space out there, to be able to do it, say if you live here in the east, there's certain areas that it's just really hard to get out to, quote unquote, nature. So that's I know something that probably environmental engineers and people working in cities, city planners, it seems like that's the direction they're going. That they're trying to bring nature back into the cities. And I know that if the cities can get reindigenized in some way, that's going to go a long, long way to fixing some of these issues, environmental issues that are caused by all that disrespect and that lack of honoring certain values in the landscape. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, I just got lost in my own thoughts about probably Montana, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That happens a lot. When, <laughs> that's a part of what we what got these conversations and why we decided to start the podcast is her and I and Kaya and Cynthia – We'd just sit up there for a long, long periods of time, especially that like towards the end of the first semester and then really that, that second semester mm-hmm. that we spent here. We, we had long, really long conversations to our debt, the detriment of our studies sometimes. Our, our other <laughs> studies, we'd sit there and talk about some of these things. And I think one day we just, her and I were sitting and we decided, well, 
some of this stuff is really important and I think could help some of the people, like people we love and care for back home have no idea that these things, kinds of things are going on in academia, that there, there's this call for a different way to do science and that people like you are actually shifting that and creating space for the exploration of new paradigms. And I couldn't be more excited to be a scientist now because in a lot of ways, it's almost like we can actively think about shifting paradigms. I don't know how useful that that will be, but I don't know if that was always possible in science of the past. And especially just hearing you describe the way, like your experience in academia. I I agree with you. I think that, that we are in a place where we've realized that the monoculture of science has certainly brought us um, all many of the benefits of, of, of Western science, but that it hasn't in fact been able to solve all these complex problems that, that rely on more than scientific knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is always for me, I want to be careful to say it isn't science or traditional knowledge. To me, my, my vision of it is science and traditional knowledge where, where the tools of science are directed by the values of the indigenous worldview. Um, I love to think of the new kind of science that could emerge if the principles were respect, mm-hmm. reciprocity, relationship, reverence, um, uh, responsibility. Um, if those were the guiding principles of doing science, um, um, to me, that's really exciting. It's really, yeah. it's, it's really, I've been studying paradigm shifts lately just to try to understand how they work. And to, the more I study them, the more I understand that it's very likely that's what we're experiencing now. We're right in the middle of it, but it hasn't happened yet. The that's not the paradigm that most science is operating off of right yet, and to to see that it's potentially going that way direction gives me a lot of hope for the future. Actually, because I know the power of science in modern culture and modern society is uh, especially. I know there's kind of there there's I, I guess two sides. I know I've noticed that some people don't respect science, and other people really that that's the only thing they respect, and. I think it's what you're talking about that it's this way or that way type of thinking and not integrating the science and their spiritual or their more religious oriented beliefs into a working framework of an actual worldview to operate off of, not just day to day, but in their research and in the lab and wherever they're working. I know that you recently have a, had a huge change in your life when you went on that walk on the from the Bitterroot, mm-hmm. the walk that brought the Bitterroot Salish to the Flathead Reservation, and so that was a major paradigm shift for you. Yeah, but I'm curious, like just because it was kind of recent, right? Yeah, I think all of my shifts have occurred after the age of 25, probably. Yeah. Um, because and how old are you now? If you don't mind. So that's, that's a small, that's a really short amount yeah. of time, but it's um, amazing how much change can come from that, right? Yeah. I think that working with Robin and I think working with the ladies at the farm, I think now my shift has really went from 
looking at plants as a science and more looking at plants as a way to heal historic traumas and a way to connect people to places. And I think that I had already kind of had that idea of what I wanted to do when I started the, at the end of the walk, that's what I wanted, but I never really knew how I could go about that until I met Robin, until I met the ladies. And then I was like, okay, like this is a hundred percent a thing that I can do. And this is something that is something that is as easy as going and harvesting one plant and like really understanding how important that one plant is not only to the ecosystem itself, but to the people who had came before you that survived off of this plant. And I think that I wouldn't have known that if I didn't take the step to come here and to really learn from people who had learned from people before them. And I think that it's a cycle of learning. And and that's why I think that when people, especially indigenous people who look at education as a way of being very colonized, I think that having good mentors is, is what you need to look for. Hmm. Yeah. I know I had a really different experience from Annie. When I got here, I felt very certain about values and where I was going, even though I'm not doing the project that's even close to what I thought I was going to do. The values is what helped me get through and define things and help me figure things out and give me clarity pretty much every step of the way, even though there's always going to be fogginess and confusion. I think some of those things are, are, are a good sign, actually. But so her and I, dealt, t- t- I think we've dealt with the challenges of being graduate students here in a big city in fairly different ways. Mm-hmm. But the values are from the very very same community and so that that reminds me of the this question that really was at the heart of why we started the podcast in the first place is how do you be indigenous in the modern world with all these different challenges how do you, is it even possible and we at first we were like oh, i don't know <laughs> it might not be and so we thought well let's just start a podcast about it we'll figure it out, <laughs> we'll figure it out. <laughs> And so that's something we'd like to ask you is to off. What would be the three main things that you would offer a young indigenous person to, to do that? To how would you be indigenous in the modern world? One of the things that's been important to me and that I think I have learned from my students, you guys included. So thank you for that is how important cultural identity is to us in doing our very best work. Um, And so if I had to give advice, it would be to, to in whatever form is most uh, nurturing for you to, to maintain cultural identity. Maybe Mm. it's through language. Maybe it's through family connections, um, through, through ceremony, um, through our original instructions that you carry around in your head, in your heart, even though the landscape around you is really different and, and challenging, but you carry those, those teachings. Um, so to me, our, our very best work comes from remembering who we are. Um, and everybody has a different pathway to mm-hmm. that. Um, you know, it might be art. It, it, it might be uh, plants. It might be well, all sorts of things. So whatever, whatever those are, to to illuminate them and, and hold them really precious. Um, I think the uh, 
another piece of um, guidance that has been really important for me that I've come to realize over the years, and I want to um, connect it, Annie, to what you were saying about about the work that we do being related to healing and healing historic trauma. Um, I think part of my own story that propels me is my grandfather's story. As a kid who was kidnapped off the reservation and sent to Carlisle Indian School. And as a young person, knowing that story and knowing that when I would ask my dad various things about our culture, um, he would have to say, well, those things all got left at the door of Carlisle Indian School. Um, mm. I, I can't remember a time that I didn't know that and didn't suffer that. Um, and at the same time, the, the loss that's associated with that is for me directly reflected in the work that I do now is to say, if there could be institutions that would teach you not to be who you were and not to, uh, work to heal your people um, and the land and all of these other things. Well, couldn't huh. there be? Wow. Couldn't there be a place? That makes total sense, too. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a way of embracing historic trauma and saying, that that is a wound right there. But um, But we're called to not only to suffer that, but to transform that. Mm -hmm. and uh yeah so it's not turning our back on 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 history it's it's looking at it feeling it and growing out of it um and by growing out of it i don't mean growing past it growing from it i think Mm -hmm. is 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 maybe the better way um to say that and to recognize that we are stories we are our stories um and the responsibility that that gives us to know that you know we we are our ancestors stories we are our grandchildren's stories um, and that that allows you to uh go forward with a good heart i think Those stories that's a I think that we're actually going to be doing a little mini episode on restoring because we think that's really a a major part of connecting to place. And just from our own separate research, we've come to that same conclusion. And yeah, that's like for some kind of a, like a story competition that we're entering, but that's a whole nother thing that I know that, for me anyway, was when I got into living my life as it was a story that changed everything for me, changed what I valued and how much I valued it and my own role and responsibilities in my community and realizing, wow, if, if I'm going to, if my start life is a story or a movie, why not make it the coolest, most exciting, fun one that I could be like when I get to the end of it. I can look back and be like, hmm, I could watch that again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Again>. 
not every movie is worth watching again. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, thank you for sharing all that with us. Is there anything else that you would want to add or maybe that we forgot that you'd like to our listeners to know about? I think the only other thing I might add is because we have... I'm so grateful that we have been brought together by this so-called educational <laughs> enterprise. I would want you guys to be in, to, for us to share a story, whether it was in, in university or not. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Is um, that notion that what does it mean to be an educated person? And mm-hmm. as you're filling out all your graduate school forms, you think, well, maybe being an educated person is how to fill out those forms mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and pass this test and take this mm-hmm. course. But I like to, to fall back on and remember those teachings that it, it said that, you know, an educated person is someone who knows what their gifts are mm-hmm. and how to give them in the world. And uh, I am really grateful that part of the gifts that you guys are giving in the world is this, is, mm. is the Indian Science Podcast, that you have understood your gifts and your responsibilities to share this with people. And so uh, I'd say chimigwech for that. Many thanks for that. Mm. You're very welcome. How would you say that in Potawatomi? You're welcome. You know, we don't have that. You know what? That's so weird. We we yeah. don't really have that either. Like we have thank you and stuff, but I, mm-hmm. there's no you. You're welcome. Uh-huh. Do you have mm-hmm. please in your mm-hmm. language? No. Right. No, it's kind. Of, it's just implied. I think just polite man. It's just implied mm-hmm. that the politeness is implied, and there's no words for being yes, polite. That's mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, that's same for us. And yeah. I've been told that that's the same in Kootenai too. Which I thought was like, oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember our language teacher saying that the, uh, the colonists, uh, particularly the mission folks, said, oh, what, you don't have words for please in your mm-hmm. language? Mm. Um, and uh, because they, they thought that that was needed, and they thought, wow, you're clearly very rude. But no, it, it, respect is implied. It's, yeah. Of course you're asking with respect. Of course the food on that platter is for everybody to share. You don't have to ask, mm-hmm. please, may I have that? Um, no. Hmm. It's, un- it's understood that we are in right relationship with each other. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. I think yeah. that's... Yeah. I keep I keep learning all these really, really fascinating things about the similarities between people because I, I know when I was younger I focused on differences a lot. But I'm learning a lot more that we share more in common, uh, way, way more than we have differences. But the differences on the extremes can be really, really, really extreme, it seems like. So it's humans are weird like that. It's yeah. just, uh, I like humans. humans I, I like us. <laughs> We're pretty cool, but uh, we can be pretty annoying sometimes, too. <laughs> and as I often say, that's why I'm a botanist. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Well, did uh so we said farewell last time or i'm not sure exactly what it translates to in potawatomi with uh, kaya he mm-hmm. helped us through that would you like to say see you later in salish yes how do i say that yeah we can teach you so to, it's different whether you're saying it to a, just one person or a group yeah. of people uh-huh. so since we're talking to a group of people it would be uh yeah it's like a 
Yeah, it's, it's like oh, you, you yeah. put your tongue in the t- top the, bit behind your front you two teeth, it. and then yep, Nemesh. perfect. Yeah, Nemesh. Nemesh, Nemesh. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, Nemesh, Wichtemen. <laughs> Wichtemen. Yep. Yep. Beautiful. And yeah. then Nemesh Wichtemen Sin is the the if it's singular. Just, yeah, just one person. I hope I got that right. I'm pretty sure you're yeah. right. Um, yeah, so it's different for individual and plural. Yeah, so we would say, Nemesh Wichtemen. And that'd be, see you later to the group. And in Potawatomi, we'd say, Bama P. Yeah, Bama P. <laughs> I love that, Bama mm. P. <laughs> well, thank you for turning, tuning in, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to download the podcast, you can find us at any of the main platforms like iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and definitely leave a review for us on iTunes. That helps a ton. And it also helps us understand what people would like to hear more of. So we definitely appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And you can also find us at our WordPress page and also on social media, right? Yep. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, all at NDN Science Show. So NDN Science Show, where you can let us know how we're doing or if you have an idea for the show. Yeah. Let us and know. And we'll put out announcements for our releases as well as some other content we're working on trying to get some videos as well as mm-hmm. do other different things. So you can find out about all that on those places, the social media, but we also have a WordPress page. And just like Annie said, it's at NDN Science Show. And the spelling of it is N-D-N-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-S-H-O-W.wordpress.com. That's IndianScienceShow.wordpress.com. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll catch you on the flip side.